The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, I am so glad that you are here today. My name's Chase, if you're new here, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I get the privilege of introducing our speaker for today. Some people think he's a ghost. They've heard his name, but they've never seen him up here. But 19 years ago, I walked into a portable building at TBC, and if he wasn't the first person I met, he was really close to the first person I met. Um, David Richardson then was not on staff, like I was not on staff, but he was serving our small groups, serving our Sunday school classes, just ministering to God's people while being in uh, an engineer for a power company. And then, as the Lord would have it, he grew our friendship, and David came on staff in 2006. Is that right? And, yeah. and then I did in, in 2008. And when I think about David Richardson, I think about one of my best friends in the world. I love his family, and he's loved my family. Um, and just an amazing friend in Christ. But I also think about a guy who watches his life and doctrine closely. David knows the scripture, understands the doctrine, knows how to apply it better than anyone I know. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we'll do sometimes if we're preaching through something that Gary preached through, we'll look back through his notes or go listen. If you go listen to Gary on Mark chapter 7 several years ago, he says, you know, this is a tough text. And I was kind of thinking, well, what, I wonder what this says. So, so I walked down to David Richardson's office. He's a great theologian. And I asked him, and, and today, we're going to hear Mark 7 from the source that helped Gary out. Um, David, uh, I'm going to pray for you as you come, but let's welcome David as he comes to share with us. Thank you. God, I thank you for David. I thank you for Angela and their family. Lord, I thank you, God, for how for over 20 years, um, first as a member and now as a pastor, David has served this church faithfully. I thank you, Lord, for how he is used by you to help community on mission happen. I thank you, Lord, for his understanding of the scripture. And God, I thank you for the privilege we have to learn from him today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through him, that our lives would be transformed by what we hear for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, David. Thank you, Chase. Um, Wow. So, I don't want you to think I'm a ghost. I would hope enough of you guys have met me in my role and in other uh, aspects of um, ministry that you don't think I'm a ghost. But uh, you're, he's right. I've never uh, been up here in this role. And uh, um, so I op- appreciate the opportunity. This morning marks just the latest of many things that I would have never imagined happening when my wife and I walked in back in uh, 1999 and sat in the back of the old auditorium. The old auditorium was back uh, where back of the foyer uh, nursery check-in area is now. It's back in there. And we slipped in, sat in the back on a Saturday night service, I believe. And Gary was up front teaching through the Old Testament using overhead transparencies and writing on them as he went. I think it was Joshua Judges, something like, like that. Um, that's actually more my style <laughs> than this. Um, I was walking in, saw a, one of the f- family friends of ours that we've known uh, nearly as long as, as Chase and Laura, Rebecca Cagle, and she goes, hey, you're preaching this morning, that's great. 
are you going to have your whiteboard? <laughs> well, I'm not going to have my whiteboard. We're going to uh, do it a little differently this morning. I'm going to fall into the tradition of the way we do things uh, on Sunday morning. But uh, it is a privilege to speak to you. My family has been here, as, as Chase mentioned, since... Um, 1999, actually, came on staff in 2006, but we uh, came over full-time in October of, of 99. At that point in time, we had one young child, Braden. Uh, many of y'all know Braden. Um, and we're just starting out kind of in life. Recently married, and uh, fast forward to this point, we have three boys and a girl. Braden is 22. Um, my other son is, uh, or my, my second son is a, uh, uh, I don't know if he's technically a sophomore, junior at University of Texas, but he spent most of his college career in his room in Temple <laughs> taking classes. And uh, is about to get to go back, so I know he's excited about that. We're excited for him. We miss him, but excited for him. Uh, Braxton and Brindley, my two younger ones, are at Central Texas Christian School where my wife teaches. So we've been We've been here since uh, 1999, I uh, know many of you, and it's a privilege to be able to speak to you today. Um, one other thing, real briefly, my role here is adult ministries and small groups, and so uh, one of the things I, I want to do is give you just real quickly an update on where we're at coming out of COVID for adult ministry stuff. And so on Sunday mornings, most of the groups have opened back up. And um, we have another one coming up this next week. The old Celebrate Recovery Sunday morning group will be launching this next week. We're very close to having everything operational again on Sunday mornings. Um, and so if you are new or looking for a way to connect, that is a great way to initially kind of find a group of people, get connected a little bit, and be able to uh, get more into the life of the church as we more fully open, particularly by August, September. Um, but ultimately, a lot of those are designed to, to move us to small groups. Here at TBC, one of the things we do that is central to who we are is home group ministry. Home groups are one of the ones that were actually least affected by COVID, by the pandemic. Small groups continued to be able to meet and stay connected. They might have met differently for seasons, for periods of time during there, but they would continue to meet and love each other and continue to be the church. Ultimately, home groups are the model that we desire for you to connect and be part of the body and live out what it is uh, to be the people of God. As we get into August and September, there are going to be a lot more opportunities for connecting events to help you get connected to those if you choose not to use the Sunday morning, Sunday school method of, of connecting to groups. So anyway, that's my uh, obligatory um, adult ministry pitch uh, from the opportunity of being up here. And now let's move in to the text. We're, we're uh, continuing to look at the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. I love the gospels. Now, I, I like Paul's writings. I like theology. I like doctrine. But I particularly love the Gospels. Matthew is one that was um, particularly influential for me in my life. But I love the Gospels. It's kind of like a movie where you're able to get immersed in the story. Um, everything else can fade away, and you kind of participate in the story of over the three years of Jesus' ministry. Um, so I, I love the Gospels. Now, we're going to pick up today in Mark 7. Now, in Mark 7... We're about two years into Jesus' public ministry. He's got about one year to the cross. He's been preaching and teaching in the areas around Galilee in the northern part of, of Israel. Crowds have been coming out as we, 
We saw last week, uh, I believe it was, when Chase walked us through uh, the feeding of the 5,000. We had uh, essentially the peak of Jesus's earthly ministry, his fame, his, his um, appeal to the crowd. People are coming from all over to be healed, to have demons cast out. Um, after the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us they actually tried to forcibly make him king. Okay? They wanted to make him king. He was at the peak of his popularity. As we ended up last week, he was even walking on water. So big, um, important time in uh, Jesus' ministries at the peak of his popularity. But there is a, a darker subplot to the story that Mark is, uh, returns to today. Earlier in Mark, we saw that Jesus had continually come into conflict with the religious leaders. Uh, back in chapter 2, we saw that he rubbed them the wrong way when he, gave, uh, or when he forgave the sins of the paralytic that had been brought in to Jesus, and he had forgiven their sins, and to them, that was blasphemy. And then they get upset a little bit because he's hanging around with unclean people, with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, as we go on in chapter 2, Mark tells us about the conflict that the Jewish leaders have with him over picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. To them, that was a violation of the Sabbath. And then we also see the final straw where Jesus has the audacity to heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. After that point in time, we see in Mark 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians on how they might destroy him. If you've got another translation, uh, I know the Net Bible uses, try to assassinate him. They were ready to be done with Jesus. So as the scene in Mark 7 opens up, we have Jesus healing people, casting out demons, crowds loving him, and at the same time, we've got the Pharisees and the scribes beginning to plot to kill him. So that opens us up in our text this morning in Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? We see here what we'll call the second Jerusalem Jesus task force. This is the second time Mark specifically tells us that they're coming from Jerusalem, the scribes. So if you remember the first Jerusalem task force, Tim talked to us or told us about that back in um, um, Mark 3, shortly after the, they had decided to, to kill Jesus, Tim walked through that passage. Remember, they came from Jerusalem, and they saw him healing, casting out demons, and their approach at that point in time to try to get him um, to lose favor with the crowd, to lose influences, was they said, well, it is by the power of Satan he's casting out Satan. It was by the power of Satan you're destroying Satan's kingdom. And so Jesus... Um, as, as he tends to do, always takes their arguments, takes their questions, and, and hits them from an angle they're not, not ready for, they're not thinking about. Um, so Jesus points out to them, so, so you think by Satan's power, I'm destroying Satan's kingdom. 
that doesn't even make sense. If Satan destroys his own kingdom, it's a house divided, it can't stand. Your argument doesn't make sense. Now, I don't know what the report went like when they went back to Jerusalem and, and, and talked about this. Well, we accused him of, of um, casting out demons by the power of, of, of Satan. How'd that go? Well, he kind of pointed out it didn't really make any sense. Well, you're scribes. You're the experts in the law. You're the ones that, that interpret um, the law that's been passed down, that are experts in the traditions that we follow. Surely, you could use that as an approach instead. So, uh, we get them uh, coming back. Uh, this time, their goal is probably along the lines of, let's watch him, let's discredit him based on um, his, his, the way you're practicing the law, because ultimately we need him to lose influence with the people, or we need to find some form of way, or something that we can use as a way to take legal action against him. So, you can picture them kind of hanging around watching him. They've come back from Jerusalem, they're the scribes, they're, they're hanging out here, they're watching then they see something. We see that some of your disciples don't ceremonially wash their hands before eating. Who do you think the some were? I can't help but sit there and I think about this way. I like to, to look at narrative texts. I like to try to think through these things as, I, as though I'm there. And, and, and when I'm thinking about this, I can't help but think of four people. Peter, James and John for, for three, right? I mean, they're fishermen. They're used to being out probably eating on the beach. They're not used to worrying about all the ceremonial things. They're, they're blue working men, blue collar working men. Um, the other that is very likely, uh, you know, I, in my mind's eye, when I see there is Levi. Levi's a tax collector. He's unclean simply because of who he is. In their culture, he was unclean simply because of his role as a tax collector. And so these scribes see Jesus, and they tell him, hey, some of your, your people over here are, un, are doing un, they're violating the traditions of the elder. They're, they're unclean when they eat. That might be fine if you're on a fishing boat or fine at your tax collector booth, but Jesus, you're a rabbi, these are religious students. This isn't okay. Are you a bad rabbi? Are they renegades? Why are they doing this? Now, Mark explains in the parenthetical, it's, uh, it was back the, but the, in the verses three and four, he's kind of got this, if you notice in your Bibles, you've probably got a section that's got parentheses around it. And that's, that's Mark's parenthetical comment to his audience. Mark is most likely writing to Christians in Rome or of Latin background. So he has to explain a lot of these Jewish traditions. And so what he's done here is explained um, why they, they wash their hands before they eat. Now, their whole religious system, uh, those of the, of the Jewish system, the scribes and Pharisees, their whole religious system had become marked by adherence to numerous traditions of this nature. So Jesus, why don't you and your followers follow this one? But Jesus knows what's in their heart and knows what they're really trying to do, and he's going to give them a two-part answer. I don't know what they were expecting for an answer, but I'm pretty sure these two answers he gave them were not uh, high on their list of expectations. Now, Mark 7, uh, 6 through 8, 
And Jesus says to them, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Here Jesus mentions the commandment of men and traditions of men in contrast with the commands of God. So here's what's happened in their religious system. This entire system has evolved perhaps with good intentions. I mean, we would expect it to have been good intentions as they, uh, as they started out, and they didn't just start out trying to create this legalistic system. But remember, um, they got this, uh, the, the, the commands, the law at Sinai. Now, traditions evolve. It happens to us also. Traditions evolve as you try to live your faith in the real world. And so, uh, if, you, if you remember that they got their, their law at Sinai with commands like, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you shall do no work on the Sabbath, but it be a complete day of rest. Now, if I take any two of you and tell you, you're to do no work. For one of you, that's going to mean you're walking straight to the couch, you're laying down, and you're having your kids bring you the remote. (laughs) But there are some of you, if I tell you, you should do no work, but it's to be a complete day of rest, you'll think, that's great. I'm not going into the office today, and you're going to mow the yard, you're going to reorganize the garage, and probably two or three other things. And to you, that was a day off from work. Well, to the people um, in the Jewish nation, to the Jews, you've got to multiply that times everybody that hears that command. And you have to make some decisions on what does that mean? What does it mean to rest and not work on the Sabbath? And so over time, they began to define what that looked like. Um, You know, because ultimately you don't want to do it wrong, Right? I mean, you're, you just got these commands from God. When you don't obey the commands of God, things go poorly for the nation. So they want to obey the commands of God. So uh, another way that it involved, uh, evolved over time was in their zeal to be holy. Okay? Their zeal to be holy. Early in their time, you know, as these developed, because these are well-established by the time they get um, to this point in history, but they would sit there and say, well, look, there's this command for the, for the priests to wash their hands and be clean, ceremonially clean, before eating the sacred food at the temple. Them and their families, as long as they were clean, could eat the food that was sacred there. Well, the Pharisees are thinking, well, you know, in the, well, in the ones that led up to this point in time, the, the, the folks that had um, early on, the elders that had been part of developing the tradition, would be thinking, well, if it's good enough in the, in the temple to be holy and, and to do this, we want to expand those traditions out. And so it became anybody who ate any food needed to become to follow these, these traditions. So these were the traditions. They weren't commands that God had given. They were expansions on it as they tried to live out. What did it look like to be holy? How could we be zealous to be holy? And what does it look like to live out these commands? Over time, though, what happens is that everyone forgets where the traditions come from. 
and the traditions that were intended to help you obey the rule effectively replaced the rule. It went from don't work on the Sabbath to you can't heal a withered hand on the Sabbath. It went from don't work on the Sabbath to you can't harvest your field on the, has- on the Sabbath, that's work, to you can't pull the head of grain off of something, uh, a plant when you're walking through the field, that's work. Okay, so you see how it evolves, starting with good intentions. Now, um, so, so for the first part of Jesus' answer, what he's told them is, um, you appear to be zealous of God by the things you say and do, but your heart is far from God. Your religion has become a religion of, of the, following the traditions of men. He tells them, you said, I don't follow the traditions of the elders. They've accused Jesus, why are you not following, or your disciples not following the traditions of the elders? Jesus is basically telling them, you do not follow the commands of God. I'm not following the traditions of elders, but you're not following the commands of God. And he says, so let me give you an example. Now, they had this tradition called Corbin. And Corbin, you could, uh, Corbin means devoted. You could devote something to God. So let's, let's move it here to our time. I'm going to leave all my possessions to the church. It's Corban. Okay? I'm going to devote it to, I'm going to give it to the church, give it to God when I die. It's kind of like deferred giving. So I've devoted it for this purpose. In the meantime, my parents are struggling with things financially, they're, they're having issues, and I've got all this wealth that I am now declaring devoted to God. And therefore, I can't help my parents. Jesus says the command is clear. The command says honor your father and mother. And anyone who defiles or, or to rev- who reviles their father and mother should be put to death. But you're allowing this tradition of Corban to allow you to not take care of your mother. It's a tradition you came up with. It's a tradition where you have said there's no way out. You can't help your parents with this. And he goes, and there's lots of things like this that you guys are doing. You use your tradition to trump God's command. And Jesus says they do a lot of things like that. So the first part of his answer addressed their use of traditions that end up taking priority over God's commands. He says, you say you love God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So your religion has become simply following your man-made traditions and your worship is in vain. Now it's easy to look down on the Pharisees and Jews of Jesus' day. We, of course, have left legalism in the past, right? We no longer elevate traditions to the level of law. Surely we recognize the difference between tradition and the commands of God, right? Let's think about the two main things that law and traditions do. Law and traditions defined how to live out faith in relation to God. In other words, how do you draw close to God? How um, do we relate to God? And the second thing that the law and the traditions did is they defined who is inside and outside the community. Who are with us and the people of God who are outside? Uh, it's the idea of, of purity. Tradition says this is how we do things. This is how we do things. Okay? Now, tradition, if you don't think traditions are a big deal, ask anybody in church leadership 
anywhere about how this last year went when traditions got challenged and shut down for different reasons. All of a sudden, you found out that certain traditions have been elevated in people's thought to the level of essentials of the faith. Think about worship, how we do worship. The way we do worship in our tradition is we all come together into a large auditorium. We have a particular uh, uh, program, way we kind of go through things, and that's the way we do worship. That's our tradition, though. Because at this very point in time, there are churches all over the world meeting that do things very differently. Many of them are in homes, meeting in small collections of believers. The same is true not just throughout space now, but throughout time in history. Churches have met and it has looked differently. But what you found out was during COVID, when we weren't allowed to meet in this way, and and some times actually in Texas you were never forbidden from doing this okay but we chose to cooperate with the the, um, authorities and, and we didn't meet this way and you would think we had abandoned the faith churches everywhere experienced this that to meet in accordance with this tradition is equal to the essentials of the faith Now, the discussions are frequently more nuanced, and there's a lot more to things, but just across the board, we see that traditions are important. If you don't think traditions are important, what if we drastically changed the way we did worship on Sunday mornings? Drastically changed the way we did worship on Sunday mornings. We'd lose a lot of people. Just simply because in their zeal to protect the purity of the faith, they would believe we have abandoned that and because of their value of the tradition would then violate an actual command of God. You say, well, how would that violate a command of God? New Testament commands are a a progression of Old Testament. We begin to see the fulfillment of the law and Jesus more clearly explains certain things and, and places emphasis in places. And so one of the things he tells them that last night before his crucifixion is, I'm giving you a new command. My command is that you love one another like I've loved you. How did Jesus love us? Sacrificially, laying his life down for us. I've already told you to love your enemies. I've already told you to love your neighbor. Now I'm telling you to love one another, you believers that are together, to love one another like Christ loved the church. How many times, uh, and then later that night in the high priestly prayer, he talks about, um, he prays for our unity that the the believers would have the same kind of unity he shares with the Father. How many times have traditions, the way I think, and let's change the wording just a little bit, the way I think things should be done, and I am concerned and zealous for the purity of things being done the way I think things should be done, how many times has that led us to not demonstrate love for one another, not demonstrate the unity of the believers, but instead divide? How many times has our zeal for tradition, again, defined as perhaps the way I think things should be done, because there's always some tradition that agrees with you. Uh, Chase referenced the, the conversation that I had with Gary that he referenced in the, in the, in the sermon when he taught on this passage back in around two, uh, 2013, 2014. 
Our discussion involved traditions. Why did he come talk to me? Well, one of the reasons, I have a background in a Baptist church. Many, all of you guys have certain religious backgrounds. Some of us hold more strongly to traditions than others. And so we had this discussion regarding the different traditions in the Christian, Christian faith. And there are a lot of them. Um, the entire landscape of Christianity is defined by differences over tradition. You've got the Episcopals do things this way, and the Baptists do things this way, and others. Now, at times, there are actual substantial differences in there. There are essential things at times that, that cause some division, but the vast majority of the landscape is defined simply on differences of tradition. The command is observe the Lord's Supper. The tradition is how you do it. And every group has its thoughts on the way you should do it, and those become elevated. Um, Another another thing is uh, this idea of uh, defining who's inside and outside the community. How many times, I grew up in a tradition to where Christians looked and behaved a certain way. A lot of you probably had similar backgrounds. Christians didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't have long hair, didn't have tattoos, didn't cuss, didn't, I mean, there's a whole lot of things. We were defined very well by what we weren't, what we didn't do. Um, It's interesting, but but those are very much cultural traditions. And, and, And what ends up happening is what was happening with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were using traditions, and one of the reasons they kept coming in conflict with Jesus, they were using traditions to keep away from God the people that most needed to be drawn near. They use the traditions. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus says, because I'm a doctor and they're sick. Why, Jesus, are, are, are you with people that are unclean? Why are you going in these places? Why are you touching unclean people? Why, are you doing, why aren't you separated from all this uncleanness? Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is not defined by keeping people out that really need to be drawing close to God. Okay, as as a people, we want to draw the ones that need him most in, not come up with barriers to keep them out. So it appears almost this whole discussion was held on the side with primarily the religious leaders. As he picks up in 14, we see that for the second part of his answer, he's going to address the actual substance of the question they ask him. So he calls the crowd back over. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that came out of a person are what defile him. So here Jesus tells them that all of their zeal in pursuing ceremonial cleanness has been misdirected. Somewhere along the way, The rules and traditions that were intended to help them better live out being holy became ends. The the, the traditions that were intended to help them better live out their uh, lives being holy became ends in and of themselves. And they missed what it was always intended to point them towards. They were focused on externals. Jesus calls them or tells them that it's the internals that matter. He elaborates with his disciples when they, they come in to the house. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since his enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? thus declaring all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. They're really focused on external things. But Jesus explains to them it's a heart issue. Similar to what he told them on the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. I'm telling you, if you're unjustly angry with somebody, you violated the law. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, Jesus said, that if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed a violation of the law. He tells them they shouldn't be worried about ceremonially impure hands, causing them to become unclean by what they eat. It's not the dirt on their hands, but the sin in their heart that is causing the issue. He says they're not defiled by what goes into their mouth, not goes what, what goes into their mouth, but what comes out of their heart. It's the sin welling up in them that produces its fruit of evil thoughts, sexual immorality, deceitfulness, pride, all these things that are in the list that defiles them. You're worried, he says, about the fact you might have brushed against a Gentile and you've got these kind of things in your heart. Some of these same scribes and Pharisees were probably present later when Jesus was talking to them in Matthew 23 back towards, uh, back in Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Religious systems and legalistic systems can give you the appearance of goodness and godliness. You can come to TBC and participate in our traditions. You can show up every Sunday. You can serve in the nursery. You can attend a class. You can tithe. You can participate in all of the elements of um, of church life. And you will have the appearance of godliness. The Pharisees gave the appearance of godliness to an extreme. They were very good at the outward appearances, but Jesus tells them it's the inside that's the problem. You can come here and participate in the religious traditions and systems, and you're going to look fine. But history tells us, news reports tell us, that external appearances are not always good indicators of the heart. That's my story. See, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up, I was one of the Baptists who were 
like the elite commando Baptist because we went to church three times a week. You know what those three are. And there's a, there's a scale of holiness, right? The masses come on Sunday mornings. The insiders come on Sunday night. And the most godly come on Wednesdays. <laughs> right? I went through my life that way. And when I graduated high school and went off to college and then graduated college and went out into the work world, during that time, I kind of walked away from my faith because a whole lot of it had been rooted in the legalistic traditions in, 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 um, uh, of, the, of, of just the, the religious system. What happened was I got to a place where, man, I needed to, I ended up in a town where I didn't know anybody. One of my, my jobs took me up somewhere and I figured, I know where to find people. I'll go back to church. I mean, I was familiar with the traditions and the systems. I could do that very well, very easily slide in to those roles. And I began to be involved in leadership in these places and do all these things. But there was a lot of what was going on inside that was not clean. I had the externals, but the internals were like these Pharisees. What happened to me was I got involved with a group of people, um, very similar to a small group. It was a class and then small groups that came out of that. And I was around these people, and, and the problem I ran into is these people actually believed the stuff. I'm like, man, it was so much easier just to go through the motions. And I came to this point of crisis both through the relationships of these, these friends and also um, with uh, some, some personal reading. I, I'd read a, a book by um, Josh McDowell. His, his son Sean was here years ago. Many of y'all know Josh. He was his father. Wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. And in there, in that book, he referenced uh, what's called the trilemma. Dave or Tim one, I think it was Dave maybe uh, referenced the trilemma in our sermons earlier. The trilemma is Jesus left you three options. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or, or was he Lord? And, and, and between the relationships of these friends of mine and my own personal convictions regarding this, I, I began to be pressed with, do I believe this or not? Because if I don't, I'm going to quit going through these motions. I'm going to quit the religious traditions if I don't truly believe this. And so that drove me to a place of actually saying, man, there's more to walking with God. There's more to being part of the people of God than just the traditions, than just going through the externals. It requires this intimate relationship with God. My time up, you cut me off. <laughs> so... Um, ultimately, we can fool the people around us. You can come and you can, can go through the motions. You can fool the people around you for a while. You might even fool yourself. But ultimately, we can't fool Jesus. Ultimately, that what's in our heart is known to him. And it's that sin that's in our heart that defiles us. It's not the water from a bowl that's going to bring us close. It's not following those traditions. It's actually not the water. It's the blood. Jesus came so that those that were separated because of legalism and, and sin in their heart could be washed clean and actually draw close to God. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, thankful for your word, thankful for this uh, uh, time to, 
to look at the story Mark has told us of Jesus' encounter with the scribes, I pray, Father, that you will um, help us to see the truth of what he's talking about, that we will not place so much emphasis on tradition that we miss the commands of God to love one another and to love you, Father. I pray that um, if any of us here are, are struggling with going through the motions, that this morning you will you'll prick our hearts, that you will convict us of our sin and bring us, Father, to the cross.